Well, if you can find your way in the New Testament of your Bibles to the book of Colossians, it's a little tiny book. Um, we're going to start a new study today. We'll jump from the Old Testament book of Ruth, which looks forward to Jesus. We're going to jump right over Jesus to the book of Colossians that looks back at Jesus in a really, really beautiful way, as, as we'll see as the, the book unfolds. But before we jump in, I want to I take a moment and encourage you with three ways to get ready to study this little book of Colossians together with us. So first thing, read it. Read all of it this week. Read the entire book of Colossians this week. And uh, I know some of you are thinking, an entire book in one week? Um, this book has about 1,500 words in it. Okay, compare that with the shortest biography of Jesus, the Gospel of Mark, has 500,000 words in it. So um, in an average Bible, Colossians takes up three and a half pages. You can do this. You can read an entire book of the Bible in one week. You should do that this week. Read, read Colossians. Second thing that's really helpful to do, you should listen to it, all of it. Listen to the entire book. Uh, we have the, offered for you at, at no charge this amazing little thing called the Dwell app. Uh, if you go to Northwake's website, you search for Dwell, it'll pull up instructions on how you can get the app, and I believe we still have free uh, subscriptions available uh, to that. Um, even if you had to pay for it, whatever it is, it's well worth it. And to listen to the whole book, uh, depending on the voice you choose, there's a bunch of voices you can choose from from different countries around the world. It takes about 16 minutes. So you could listen to the whole book of the Bible, whole book of Colossians, most of you on your morning commute. Um, so uh, you can get that. You should read it. You should listen to it. And I would suggest that you survey it. Okay? Get the lay of the land. Get a sense for what the book of Colossians is about. And the Bible Project guys are always super helpful with this stuff. And I'll try to post this week the link, but if you do it online, you Google Bible Project Colossians, it's gonna pull up a wonderful little nine minute, 10 minute video that overviews the book. You'll learn more stuff than you'll probably learn from me as I preach this book, just from in nine minutes of watching these guys kind of cover the book and map it out for you. If you want something a little more creative, I also use this guy sometimes. His name is Pastor Landon. He is uh, uber creative and shocker, he's a youth pastor. Um, and he does the book of Colossians in about five minutes. So if you want a little faster, a little more creative, not quite as detailed, you can watch him. We'll post that this week as well. Read it, listen to it, survey it this week. Let me add a fourth one just as a bonus. You should pray. Pray when you listen. Pray when you read. Pray when you watch those little videos. Pray that this little book would cause you to love and follow and share Jesus more. Just pray that little prayer. As you read it, Lord, help me to love and follow and share Jesus more because of what I'm going to learn about him in the book of Colossians. So um, let's practice that last point right now. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we open your good word now. Um, we believe that, that it's your word. It's not the word of any man. Um, and we ask your spirit to take it and skillfully um, settle our Restless minds on it, let us hear well, welcome it, walk it out this week for your name's sake and for our joy. We, we pray Jesus in your name, amen. And so the, this, this 
This book is a letter, and if you've read the New Testament letters, it starts in a very familiar fashion, first verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So it's a letter uh, written to a church, and here you see it has dual authorship, right? Two guys, Paul, Timothy. Paul's the primary voice we're going to hear throughout, and he is that Paul of New Testament legend um, he, he's a great first century missionary. His story is told in the book of Acts. And he wrote most of the other letters in the New Testament. Commonly, they count up 13 different letters that the New Testament contains that belong to the pen of the Apostle Paul. Um, Timothy, the other guy, the other author, is Paul's protege. And the New Testament contains two letters uh, that bear his name, First and Second Timothy, that Paul wrote to Timothy when they were separated at, at one point. In our letter, Timothy, some scholars think he may have served kind of like Paul's secretary. He was writing down what Paul was saying, that that's, that's possible. And that may explain why, why this book has some unique vocabulary and style um, for those of you who are reading Greek uh, these days. You may notice that. But Paul wrote this letter and uh, about four other ones from prison and we can't really be certain which imprisonment Paul wrote this from because he's in prison a lot, at least three times, and maybe a bunch more. He spent a lot of time in prison. Um, Rome is a popular guess as to where this might have been written from. Paul's in prison in Rome, and he wrote this little letter during the 60s, not like the Beatles in Vietnam 60s, but like first century 60s, right? Um, just 30 short years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul writes here as an apostle. Uh, that's a word that can just mean uh, somebody who is sent, a messenger. Uh, you might call that the small a apostle. But um, there's also something in the New Testament that some people call a capital A apostle. It's someone with unique authority when they write. Um, sometimes it's related, associated with being an eyewitness of the risen Christ. And Paul is that kind of apostle. And you notice Timothy's not uh, in, in this letter. And if being apostle wasn't enough, he says he's won by the will of God. Uh, not by popular vote. And not by Caesar's decree. Uh, one writer put it this way. said, Paul is staking out here that he is God's man, not Caesar's. And Colossae was a Roman province under the thumb of Rome at, at this point in time. And so this authoritative place of writing as an apostle is going to come into play in chapter 2. Because Paul is going to encounter rather some false teaching that was making its way into the church. Or at least pressing the church uh, this little Colossian church that he's writing to. Fascinating thing, Paul's writing to a church that he didn't plant and he likely never visited, okay? So he's writing to people that he does not know. Let's meet those people that he's writing to in, in this little letter in verse two. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our, our Father. So clearly, he's writing to a church here, right? To saints and brothers. That's clearly church folk lingo. This is a letter to a church. 
Um, saints here, it's not like uber holy people like Mother Teresa or St. Augustine. This just refers to, to Christians, Christ followers. And these, though, are tagged as faithful Christians. Um, again, Paul's getting this information secondhand, right? Uh, he's getting it long distance. He's a long ways away from the city of Colossae when he writes this. And their reputation, even from that distance, is that these are faithful folks who are following Jesus faithfully. Now, he uses there, this sounds odd to us in our day, the language of brothers when he addresses the church. It's not an exclusive term, right? He's not like he's only writing to the guys or um, only the guys are faithful and the women are all rascals. That's not what he's That's not what this language means. In fact, some of your Bibles will amend that to read brothers and sisters. And that's really the idea um, that Paul has in mind. He's writing to the whole church, even though he's using that language. Uh, It is of some significance, though, that Paul, as a devout Jew, uh, would write to a largely Gentile or non-Jewish congregation and call them brothers, family. Um, New Testament scholar David Garland says, for a devout Jew to call Gentiles brothers, many of whom he's never met, reveals the radical consequences of a gospel that swept away all racial prejudices, isolating people from one another. So these people are in, they are the church in a city called Colossae, which is uh, modern day Turkey, um, if you notice on the map up there, you can find it. I don't have my little pointer thing. If you guys are feeling really laserish back there, you can point it out. I think it'll reach all the way from back there if you can find it. Um, but it's down kind of lower left-hand corner, Colossae. You see it there? It's just a little east of Ephesus and a little kind of south of Philly. Not that Philly, that, that, that Philly. Um, and it says, uh, if you, let's see, this, the city was destroyed by a devastating earthquake that struck the valley around the time that Paul uh, was writing this letter. City never really never recovered its prominence after that earthquake. Uh, And if you went there today, you would not find any cool ruins like these at Ephesus, right? This is Ephesus. You wouldn't find anything like that. You find just a little hump. This is Colossae. Uh, That's all you'd find. Uh, There's just not much left of the city. One scholar described Colossae as the least important church Paul wrote a letter to. Um, So what that means is this is a letter for folks like us, right? Uh, You and me here in a little town. uh, It's not for super Christians. It's not for super churches. Uh, I mean, it is, but not just for, for those folks. Uh, it's for regular folks like us who live in Wake Forest, right, and Youngsville, um, and are trying our best to follow Jesus. Now, w- one other little thing before we move along. Um, he says these folks in Colossae were faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's a phrase Paul uses a lot in his writings. He, he loves that phrase. And um, These people don't just live in Colossae. They live in Christ. Uh, It's more than a street address. This is their identity. Um, And I'm going to quote uh, Pastor Sam Storms a number of times today, uh, Chip's old schoolmate back in the day. Um, 
he, he, he puts it this way, the significance of this identity in Christ. He says, no matter where you are geographically and physically, what you are spiritually will never change. You may be at work, at play, overseas, under the weather, out of money, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be down in the dumps, over the hill, or beside yourself, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be at paradise or in prison, at the movies or in Chicago, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. Your geographical, earthly, physical location has no effect on your spiritual identity. He says, but the reverse is different. It is precisely because you are in Christ that wherever you live and work and play, you make an impact. You carry an influence. You make a difference. Your spiritual identity as one in Christ must control and characterize how you live wherever you live. And then he adds with my little tweak, what an indescribable privilege and joy to be a saint in Christ in Wake Forest. And so to this little faithful church, in this little town of Colossae, Paul writes these words of blessing to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Uh, if you're familiar with the New Testament and these kinds of letters, it sounds kind of almost formulaic, right? Um, a, a number of Paul's letters especially start kind of like this, these kinds of words. It almost feels like what we say when someone sneezes, right? God bless you. It's like a formula. It doesn't, even, it doesn't really even mean anything sometimes. Um, but Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing under the prompting of the Spirit of God here, is choosing these words more carefully and wisely than that. Um, I like the emphasis, just one sliver of uh, the meaningful angle on the blessing of grace that Pastor John Piper brings out in this. He says, at the beginning of his letters, Paul has in mind that the letter itself is a channel of God's grace to the readers. Grace is about to flow from God through Paul's writing to the Christians. So he says, grace to you. That is, grace is now active and is about to flow from God through my inspired writing to you as you read. Grace be to you. And so as you read this week, this little, right now even, this little letter to the Colossians, it bears the grace of God to you. And the blessing of peace carries similar weight. And again, Sam Storms described this really well, the kind of peace that God is blessing over the Colossians and he's blessing over us even as we read it. You know, 2,000 years later, the blessing is still on us, the blessing of peace. He says, perhaps the best way to describe this peace is by pointing out what it does for us in the midst of crisis, pain, and the disillusionment of life in a fallen world. Paul has in mind that glorious work of the Spirit in our hearts that says, a sudden tsunami may sweep away my house and my family, but my life is hidden with Christ in God. A terrorist may separate my head from my body, but nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. An incurable disease may ravage my body, but God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. An unfaithful spouse may walk out never to return, but God has promised never to leave me or forsake me. 
enemies of the faith may persecute me and confiscate my property, but I can still rejoice because I have a better possession and an abiding one, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for me. This, he says, is the abundant Christian life, a peace and joy and satisfaction in God so deep and unmovable and indelible that no amount of suffering can shake it. So all of that and much, much more lies behind these two little words of blessing that Paul prays over the church in Colossae, grace and peace. And so this morning I would say, grace and peace upon you. Church called North Wake, God's own grace and peace be upon you, even as you read these words. In verse 3, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So again, this is a church Paul didn't start, probably has never visited it, Um, and he is fervent in prayer for them. He is always, he says, giving thanks to God for them. It's a church of strangers, you don't even know. So, can we just stop and kind of be challenged by Paul's example here? Um, if he is always praying over a little insignificant church full of strangers he has never met, how much more ought we be in prayer for our own church? Right? I mean, if, if we did a show of hands right now, regarding how many of us are always giving thanks, always praying for our own church, how would that look? But clearly, this also has ramifications for even praying for other churches as well, right? And I I try to do this. I call it drive-by prayer. And so when I drive down Capitol, I pray for the summit. It's right there. Uh, just atop all the car dealerships there. The summit is down. When I drive by, I pray for Pastor J.D. Greer, and I pray for the summit. And if you live in Youngsville, uh, you drive by Faith Baptist Church, pray for, pray for Faith Baptist Church. When you drive by, you get the idea. You're, you, know, you can't drive in Wake Forest anywhere and not go by a church, right? We're, we're everywhere. Um, pray. Pray for the churches in our city. But for starters, how about every single time, every single time you come on our property or you drive by our church, you pause and pray and just quick give thanks for Northway Church. How about we just, let's, this is gonna be our deal, this is what we're gonna do. When you set foot on the property, when you pull in the parking lot, or when you drive by on your way to Lidl, you pray and give thanks for, for Northway Church. Paul is evidently really thankful for this little band of believers that he does not know in Colossae. And he tells us why there in verse four. It says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So he's, he's really thankful that for their faith and the love that they show uh, towards other, other Christians especially. Um, he gives thanks. I want, I want to pause and, and take note 
um, especially for uh, that second one. But notice, though, that he thanks God for their faith and love, right? He doesn't just pat the Colossians on the back and say, good job, guys. He thanks God that they're faithful and that they're loving. Uh, His thanks is directed to God. Think of it this way. Daniel Cresswell sings an amazing solo. I thank Jake Mason. Does that make any sense? Yeah, you know how Jake sings, so no, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Couldn't hold it in, could you, Greg? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, No, you thank the person responsible, right? So what's Paul saying here? That the fruit that looks like Jesus in our lives is not something we just kind of muscle up, right? We try harder so we're more loving. Now, this is the kindness of God that comes into our our lives. Um, That's why God is getting the thanks for their reputation. And and honestly, this is why church bragging is downright silly, right? My church is better than your church. We get better worship team. Annette, pastor. That, okay, abjectly silly because who gets the thanks? God gets anything good that's happening here, any real soul work that produces faith and love, that's God's domain. That's his handiwork. The thanks uh, goes, goes to God. So for sure, love your church, right? Pray for your church, but give thanks to God for your church. All that is good here is due to the grace and kindness of God. God gets the thanks. As one writer put it, Do not reach around to pat yourself on the back. Rather, extend your hands toward heaven and say, thanks be to God, right? So, Paul gives thanks first for their faith. Uh, Surely that's just the fact that they have faith, the presence of their faith, but he's probably most most excited about their practice of their faith, uh, that they're living out, this church is living out their faith in obedience to Christ. I want to look more carefully at the second thing this morning that Paul's especially thankful for, the love that they have for all the saints. He's going to underscore that mark again down in verse 8 when he writes about a mutual friend named Epaphras who made known to Paul your love in the Spirit. Um, So twice, just in our eight verses we're going to look at today, Paul points out the way this church loves especially the way they love one another and the way they love other Christians, right? Um, and Paul is quite clear here in verse 4. It is the love that they have for all the saints, for all the saints. And Sam Storms, again, encourages us. He says, had Paul discovered that they loved only some in the church, reserving their affection and sacrifice for those of a similar socioeconomic achievement or an identical color of skin or common ethnic or national heritage, I dare say he would not have experienced the sort of joy that's so obvious in his words. Their love was for all the saints, irrespective of those distinguishing features and public accomplishments that so often dictate whom and when and how much we will love. They loved all, all the saints. And it's a visible love, evidently. Uh, It was their reputation, one that had traveled all the way to Paul. Um, And our love for one another really has to be visible. 
for Jesus to be able to say, by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another, it has to be visible. How could they know that our, our mutual love, if our love was not seeable or observable in some clear way? Okay, so it's a, it's a love for all Christians. It's evidenced in action. It's demonstrable. Um, and it's the work of the Spirit, Paul says down in verse 8. It's the work of the Spirit. Um, that's why he gave thanks to God for it and didn't just pat the Colossians on the back for being loving. Um, as this little letter is going to unfold, even though this little church, Paul says, is marked by love, it's a, they're exemplary in the way they love, he's going to press them to love all the more. It's going to happen in chapter 2. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. He's praying that their hearts would be knit together in love. In chapter three, after a litany of beautiful marks of the church, he turns again to love and he writes, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. A few verses later, he's gonna write specifically to husbands, say, husbands, love your wives. Love is a huge deal for Paul. Um, Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher, will call it the mark of a Christian, the way we love one another. The love of God must be on display in our churches, in our families, in our lives. It must be. It simply must be. And so the question becomes, how can I become more loving then? Uh, how do I grow a love like this? And that's exactly kind of where Paul points us next. But I've got to back up a little bit to make sense of it because uh, this whole section for Paul is one tangly long sentence. It seems to be a specialty of his, just tangling really long sentences together. So back in verse three, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So Paul's saying that as we focus on, long for, grasp more fully the sure and beautiful hope that's ours in heaven, we become more loving people, right? So the more we focus on the hope of heaven, the more loving we become here. Sometimes you hear people lament the opposite. They say, that guy's too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. It's actually a saying, right? It's like a little proverb in our culture. They're too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. Um, Pastor John Piper addresses that myth head-on, and in his normal, gentle way, you might want to buckle up for, for, for this one. He says, he says, the problem with the church today is not that there are too many people who are passionately in love with heaven. He says, name three. The problem is not that professing Christians are retreating from the world, spending half their days reading scripture and the other half singing about their pleasures in God, all the while indifferent to the needs of the world. The problem is that professing Christians are spending 10 minutes reading scripture and then half their day making money and the other half enjoying and repairing what they spend it on. It is not heavenly mindedness that hinders love. It is worldly mindedness that hinders love, even when it is disguised by a religious routine on the weekend. 
Where is the person whose heart is so passionately in love with the promised glory of heaven that he feels like an exile and a sojourner on earth? Where is the person who has so tasted the beauty of the age to come that the diamonds of the world look like baubles and the entertainment of the world is empty and the moral causes of the world are too small because they have no view to eternity? Where is this person? When religious people fail to love, it is not because they have fallen in love with heaven, but because they are still in love with the world. And, that, and that's your hug from John Piper uh, for the day. He's, he's spot on, though. You know, there are many shapes, many beautiful shapes to the hope of heaven. And, and a bunch of them are crammed together in Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall it be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away. Beautiful hopes. Beautiful hopes. But even more impressive, even more satisfying, what, what really makes heaven heaven is what the book of Revelation reveals in the verse just before that. Our greatest hope. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. At least three times, he says it there. God will be with his people. He will dwell with them. Heaven is really heaven because God is there. And we get to be with him forever in heaven and on the new earth. Our maker, our defender, our redeemer, our friend. This, this is the fuel for loving one another. We are filled with the love of God such that love simply spills over in, from our lives into the people around us. We are freed then from lesser idolatrous loves of things and stuff and such. I've always been uh, super challenged and encouraged by the example of believers whose story is so briefly told at the back end of Hebrews chapter 10. Um, Sam Storms alluded to this. Starting in verse 32 of Hebrews 10, it tells a really short story that's really powerful. He says, he says uh, recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, uh, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Did you catch, you catch that last little bit of their story? They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Someone broke in, stole all their stuff, and they're like, yeah. <laughs> How does that work? I mean, obviously they weren't excited about having their stuff stolen, but there was a greater joy, right? It, he says they had, that was because they knew that they themselves had a better possession and an abiding one, a better and abiding possession. That's the language of heaven. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about being with God. A heavenly hope freed them from being enslaved to a much lesser earthly one. And this heavenly hope, 
Paul's about to display only comes from what we call the gospel, the good news about Jesus found in the scriptures, right? And that's what Paul focuses on next in verse 5. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it, is all, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So in these few little phrases, Paul has many names for this thing we call the gospel. He says it's the hope laid up in heaven. It's the word of truth. It's the grace of God in truth. And that's because the good news about Jesus brings hope to the hopeless, grace to the undeserving, truth to those who are deceived. Twice, though, he calls it truth. Do you notice that? And this is going to be a sharp contrast to the false teachers that we're going to run into in chapter, chapter 2. Um, the message of grace and hope that Paul is talking about is doubly true. It really is. And it's a gospel that they heard with words that someone spoke to them. It was not, in their case, some mystical out-of-body experience. A friend, as we'll see, told them about Jesus. Um, so this morning, what is your relationship with the good news about Jesus, the gospel, and the book that contains it, the, the, the scriptures. Have you personally heard and understood and learned the good news about Jesus such that you're changed by it, right? Becoming someone marked by faith and love like it did to the Colossians. They heard the gospel about Jesus and, and that this and they were changed. This, this is where it all begins, though, with understanding and welcoming the good news about Jesus as true. Have you ever directly asked Jesus to forgive your sins and adopt you into his family so you can know God's love for you in a way that transforms you into a more loving person? Have you ever, have you ever embraced those truths? So if, if you don't have a clear answer on that, there's no better day than today to simply say yes to, to, to the truth about Jesus, that he loves messed up people like you and me. He does. And he offers grace by his work on the cross to cover and pay for and cleanse our sins forever so we can be square in the middle of the love of God. Um, there's, a, there's a second question, though, for those who who would answer that question, yes. Yes, I have placed my trust in Jesus, and that is, is the gospel bearing fruit and increasing in your life? He says it's busting out all over the world, like we see it busting out in the DR, right? It's busting out all over the world in Paul's day, too. Is it busting out in you? Is the gospel producing fruit in you? Are you becoming a more loving person as a result of your faith? Does that ninefold list of the fruit of the Spirit increasingly mark you? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control? Would your family describe you by those labels? Would, would your roommates describe you that way or your, your co workers? See, a deep 
and wise and prayerful reading of the scriptures daily is, is transformative power that the Spirit wields to grow in us a Christ-like love for others. Right? We are changed by the Spirit's application of the Word to our own lives. Is that how you would describe your personal intake of the Bible? Daily, deep, wise, prayerful? Or would it be more like occasional, rushed, spotty, and prayerless? See, if you aren't daily in the Scriptures in a glad way, um, we should talk, right? We should talk because you can do this. It can be that for you. Grab one of our leaders, the one you like best, and just tell them, help me with this. Help me with this. And uh, that's... That's why we're here, right? So our closing, our closing section uh, of this little passage we're looking at today shows us how this group of believers heard the gospel, the good news, the first time about Jesus. It wasn't from Paul, at least not directly. And in verse six through eight tells us the story. The grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Okay. So it seems like the story of the church in Colossae unfolded something like this. Paul wrote the Colossians while he's in prison somewhere. Rome's as good as anywhere, so we'll, we'll go with Rome. So Epaphras, a native from Colossae, Colossae was his hometown, probably heard Paul preach in the city of Ephesus, just a little ways from Colossae, and was converted. He evidently volunteered to take the gospel back to his hometown and faithfully preached there and in the neighboring cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. We'll see this later in Colossians. He then traveled to Rome to bring Paul news of the events in Colossae and somehow ended up in prison with Paul. And Paul now sends greetings from Epaphras and commends him to the church he had so faithfully served. All that is, we can piece together as the background to this guy whose name is mentioned here as being the one who started the church in Colossae. Now he's likely in prison with Paul. Epaphras was the guy who brought the good news of Jesus back to his hometown. And Paul has some pretty nice things to say about him, doesn't he? Yeah. Must have been quite a guy. You were looking for a name for your kid. There you go. Good old Epaphras or Epaphras, but I, I can't remind myself to say that, so it's Epaphras. It's a southern pronunciation. <clears throat> Paul loved him. He was a servant of the church in Colossae. He's a faithful minister of the gospel to them. He was the one who bragged on them to the apostle Paul there in prison. Um, and if you jump to the end of the letter, Epaphras is going to show up a second time in chapter 4. Amongst still more encouraging descriptors of him, we find out he's a man of prayer. And verse 12 of chapter 4 says, Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And so, the book of Colossians ends kind of where it started and um, with prayers offered for the church 
at the beginning of the letter by Paul and at the end by Epaphras. And so Epaphras then is a doubly good challenge for us. First, are you praying for our church? Even for other churches? For other believers in your neighborhood or at your school or where you work? Paul was. Epaphras was. Let's join him, okay? Let's join him. How might God have you pray for the church more than you do now? But he's a second challenge too, and and we could say it this way, are you willing to take the good news of Jesus back to your home turf? Wherever that is, whatever that means for you. Might, might be back where you grew up. When you go back to see family or see friends or for a class reunion or a vacation or whatever. Or maybe it's right here. Maybe home's right where you are. Maybe it's right in your neighborhood. Are you willing to take the good news of Jesus back to your home turf? Epaphras did. The church at Colossae exists because he went back to his hometown. And God did something amazing there. And we're still reading about it, right? What might God start through your faithful witness where you are, where you're from? Let's pray. Father, I would begin by uh, helping those who, who have never trusted you, who have never placed their faith in you. Lord, now grant to them these humble words of faith, maybe for the very first time. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, hear that prayer. And by the good work of your son Jesus on the cross, grant them mercy that renders all their sins forever cleansed, forever and ever. And um, bring them beautifully, even at this moment, into your family. Um, and Lord, once in, like, um, like the rest of us, oh Lord, give us thankful hearts for this beautiful expression of the bride of Christ here at Northway. Uh, it uh, it's, falls short at every turn, but there's such beautiful people and such beautiful work you're doing here. Lord, we collectively give you thanks for our church. God, thank you for letting us be part of your church, this church. And shape us by your word that we might be a loving people who share that love with others. Jesus, we ask this in your name and for your sake. Amen.